Thanks very much, Curtis. Uh, it's good to be here uh, with you. I don't know what's going on with uh, Pastor Phil. He heads out of town on Valentine's Day to Saskatchewan. Maybe he took a page from Barack Obama's playbook, who instead of whining and dining, Michelle went to play golf. Uh, I don't know, but let's not get into U.S. politics uh, because we want some good news this morning. Yes, indeed. God bless America and no place else. That's what they say, isn't it? <laughs> That's what they say. So, uh, as uh, Pastor Curtis indicated, I work for C2C Network, and uh, you can find out more about us at c2cnetwork.ca. But on behalf of the team, I want to say a big thank you to Willow Park for your prayer support and your financial support as we're involved in gospel advancement through church planting and church multiplication from coast to coast. Working with about 14 denominations, I know some of you are lifelong Mennonites, and I'm sorry about that, uh, but God's sandbox is bigger than the Mennonites. Hallelujah. It's bigger than even the Mennonite brethren, and the spirits at work in gospel collaboration, and we get of a front row seat as uh, people gather together in ministry that's gospel-centered, spirit-led, mission-focused. And if you want to find out what God's up to across Canada, because there's lots of bad news, and we do live in a dark, beautiful, challenging country. Uh, Canada leads the world since World War II in rapid de-Christianization. Don't know if you knew that. I mean, a respected historian like Mark Knoll has traced that, so I believe what he says. But we don't see much residue of Christian influence. Unless you go to Abbotsford, uh, the buckle of the Bible belt, but the buckle of the Bible belt is tarnished in Abbotsford. And uh, I don't live in Abbotsford, just thought I'd share that with you, because I'd go insane in Abbotsford, because there's so many Mennonites there, it would just drive me crazy. <laughs> just drive me crazy. So that's why I drive through there blindfolded, which is pretty exciting. I'm the RCMP's favorite guy. But Canada's lost. Canada needs Jesus. Canada needs the power of the gospel. So we would thank you for standing with us in prayer, invite you to continue to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. And join me for dinner here on Friday, May the 8th. Willow Park is hosting a CDC banquet, and there'll be lots of inspiring, exciting stories where we find out what Jesus is up to, and we get to say thank you again and celebrate with the Lord. Uh, Pastor Phil and I go back. It never seems right when I say that. Three-plus decades. I think we met. My wife and I have been married for 31 years, and uh, I think we met Pastor Phil when we were engaged. Uh, back then, uh, both Phil and I had hair. Uh, I was rocking a mullet back then because uh, I was a redneck Scotsman who thought it was good to have business at the front, party at the back, mullet, yay. And now, now that's not the case. But I just want to say, to all the follically challenged brothers in the house, all the baldies, myself included, that God doesn't put marble tops on cheap furniture. <laughs> also want to say God gives each man that walks his green lumpy thing the same amount of hormones. 
And if you want to use yours growing hair, that's your problem, brother. (laughs) Because what this is, ladies and gentlemen, is a solar panel for a love machine. (laughs) So back when Phil and I were in Youth for Christ, he was uh, zigzagging England's green and pleasant land. I was attempting to evangelize Scotland. I, I decided to make a foray into foreign soil and engage in cross-cultural evangelism and left Scotland for England. And I uh, took along with me a guy riding shotgun who was mentoring called Peter. And as we're leaving Scotland, headed for England, down the M74. And bear in mind, there, there is only one good thing that's ever come out of England. That's the M74. That's the road that gets you back to Scotland. But we were heading, we were heading south. And as I'm driving along, on my turbocharged chariot, a couple of things caught my eye in my peripheral vision. They were kind of moving around, and as I looked at, one of them disappeared off into the ozone layer, but the other one came towards me like a missile. And next thing, bam! A kestrel was staring at me with its beady little eyes, and it was there trapped in my wiper blades. Now, you might not know what a kestrel is, so I'm here to educate you and inspire you this morning. Uh, Where I come from in the lower mainland of British Columbia, we've got bald eagles, majestic, scowling, soaring eagles. They've got attitude and power, and they glide, and they're majestic. Well, a kestrel's like a dwarf eagle with a bad attitude. (laughs) It's got wee man syndrome. You know, you meet the guy the smallest guy in the factory, and he's got an attitude because everybody's bigger than him. And that's like the castle. It's like a dwarf midget eagle, except it doesn't have shoulders. If it did, it would have a chip on its shoulder. And there it's staring at me with its beady little eyes. And an important question rolled across my brain. I wonder if it's still alive. And I thought, what do we do, Master Bruce, when a castle lands in our wiper blades. We turn them on. And so that's what I did. I turned the wiper blades on because I thought, if it's alive, it can fly to freedom. But that isn't what happened. Turned the wiper blades on. This is what happened. <clears throat> then I thought, I wonder if I should hydrate the little critter. So I went, <laughs> turned the water on, and this time it's going, squeaky, squeaky, squeaky. But I thought, wonder if it's alive. So I stopped the car, pulled up the wiper blade, and got the kestrel, and concluded it was a kamikaze kestrel. It was dead. Now, if I was heading north to Scotland, I would have put it in the trunk of my car. And that way, if you came to my house, you could see it above the fireplace. But I had to leave it at the side of the road. Now, you could be here this morning... And the great spiritual tragedy is this, that you are suffering from dead kestrel syndrome. On the surface, on the outside, you seem to be alive, but really on the inside, you're dead. You could be coming here for years and years and years and simply be going through the motion and flapping your feathers and engaged in religious activity and religious enculturation. And really, you're dead. Biologically, you're alive. But where it counts, spiritually, you're not alive. 
One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Do you know what it is to be fully alive? Or maybe you're here, and you're sniffing around the edges, and you're contemplating going to Alpha tomorrow night at six o'clock, which is a really, really, really good idea. But you're here because you know something is awry. Something is missing. And you don't know what it is to experience what Jesus said when he said, I have come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. So if you're simply going through the motions, dead on the inside, God wants to meet with you this morning. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that we've called the reality of God, because the good news is you can be jolted out of your emptiness into the reality of God. You can be jolted out of dead kestrel syndrome, which could be dead religious kestrel syndrome, and become fully alive. Bible says there's a form of godliness without power. In other words, it's possible to go through the ritual, the routine, and never have a transforming encounter with Jesus. And so let's turn in the Scriptures together to Ephesians 3, which will appear on the screen, and is page 1169 in your stolen Gideon Bible. <laughs> and in Ephesians 3, verse 14, Paul is praying. He starts his prayer in verse 1, and then he kind of gets distracted and shares a bit of his spiritual biography. And so he has another go at it, and then he just pours out this prayer to God for an ancient faith community that he launched uh, in Ephesus. He was a fierce, gospel-centered ninja church planter, and he writes a letter and his letters are kind of unique. I don't know if you've noticed this when you read the Bible, that they're actually stacked with prayers. So they're actually a unique theological species. They're littered with prayers. So we have the privilege centuries later of these prayers, which are part of the inspired, flawless Word of God. We get to read them, and we get to eavesdrop on someone praying to the Lord God. And we can kind of follow in his spiritual slipstream and join him in the school of prayer. In Ephesians 3.14, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So here, Paul is praying that the Ephesians will wake up to the reality of God. He's praying 
that you and I might be jolted out of dead kestrel syndrome by the power of God infused in our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and by the love of God. It's a big, bold, confident, audacious prayer, and it's really a hinge passage in the book of Ephesians. There's a bold request for these Ephesian believers that reveals God's desire and dream for you and me that we experience the presence of Jesus in greater and greater measure, that we are energized and strengthened and sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the pinnacle of this prayer is that you and I enjoy the love of God, that the idea that God is love is not simply some theological abstraction, but it's an experience, it's a reality that burns in your inner landscape, that your soul, the inner you, is inflamed and engulfed by the love of God. We're called to go beyond going through the motions to live in the light of the reality of God. We are called out of dead kestrel syndrome, empty, no-use religion, or hollow life with no purpose, to be awakened by and awakened to the reality of God. And here's Paul praying to that end. And his vocabulary is significant. What he says is very significant, but his body language is very significant, his posture, because he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, the normal posture of a Jewish man praying would be to stand, stand and pray. And some of us like to stand and pray, and some of us during worship will stand and will extend our arms and hands heavenward as an act of surrender or adoration, or, or sometimes we'll, we'll turn this way. And sometimes when we're in worship or in prayer, I'll just come as if I'm wanting to be embraced by God or, or received from God. So our, our, our body, we bring our body into worship. We're not simply some disembodied souls that float around Willow Park campus. We're a soul-body unity. And Paul's posture is significant. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And it lightly signals an intensity, an earnestness, an emotion that he's really praying with gusto that these Ephesian believers, and by extension, you and I, would be ruined by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and our hearts would be ravaged by the relentless, furious love of God released into our lives by the same Holy Spirit. So there's an intensity there when Paul kneels. You remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's kneeling, and he's kneeling, and he's got this enormous burden, this enormous weight, and in the intensity where Luke's gospel says his sweat was like drops of blood on the forehead. I mean, that's intense praying, and he's on his knees praying with intensity, and he prays this prayer, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So there's an intensity as the shadow of the cross spills over Jesus as he's praying. And he says, if it's possible, take this cup from me, Father. What cup? The cup of the wrath of God. 
that Jesus would feel the full brunt and consequences of human rebellion, of the violation of the holiness of God as he's extended on a cross. That somehow mysteriously God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus came to deal with the human dilemma, alienation from God. Where you might think you're nice, you've got it all together, but outside of a life surrendered to God, your life is a defiant act of treason against God the King. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said the proper devilishness of sin is this. Makes the first words of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, I am my Lord and my God. So our original parents declared radical autonomy and treason against God the King. And this beautiful created order began to unravel, and Jesus steps into the chasm on a rescue mission to die in our place for us. He lives a life of full-on loving obedience, the life you and I can't possibly live. He dies the death we deserve to die. He takes our sin, death, judgment, and hell upon himself. God the Father raises him up to newness of life, and because of that, an exchange can take place. Jesus has taken our sin, death, judgment, hell upon himself, and we receive his life and his righteousness and the power to live a new way that honors and pleases God. The Bible says Christ was delivered up for our sin and raised for our justification. The Apostle Paul said, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And in Gethsemane, the full weight of that hits Jesus, and he's overwhelmed, and the intensity has him on his knees. Maybe the Ephesians, as they're reading Paul, say, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Remember, after he planted the church, months later, he left, and it was a weepy, teary sad, heart-ripping farewell. And they pray for him, and they pray with him. He shares his heart with them, and he's on his knees at the dockside in tears streaming down the face. And I don't think it's preacher's imagination to suggest that not only is he on his knees, but maybe because of the love, the love of a spiritual daddy, the tenderness that Paul has for the Ephesians, there's tears streaming down his face. He says, I'm praying for this reason I kneel before the Father. And the prayer's intense, but it's confident. It's fueled by a gospel optimism, because in Ephesians 3 verse 12, Paul says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So Paul knows, because Jesus spilled his blood, not only is forgiveness freely available for you and me, whatever we've done, but power of access to the throne room of God and the heart of God in prayer. So he prays with boldness and confidence and therefore challenges us to approach God with freedom, confidence, and anticipation in prayer. And Paul's prayer is fueled by the fact that his praying is in sync with the revealed will of God, which is this, that every child of God experiences the power ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that you and I walk under a cloudless heaven filled with an unquenched, ungrieved Holy Spirit, and that the love of God is a force in our lives. 
And so Paul prays for the Ephesians that they experience a deepening relationship with the Holy Spirit. He prays that God may strengthen you with power through His Spirit. He prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he also says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Deepening relationship with Jesus. So he prays for a release of Holy Spirit energy and power. But his prayer for the Spirit's activity in the Ephesians has a particular focus, that these believers experience the love of God. The love of God that is without regret. The love of God that never quits. The love of God that never ends. The love of God that is from everlasting to everlasting. And the mystery is that love is not conditioned on your response, your obedience, your ability to measure up, because it's a limitless love. But he doesn't want that just to percolate in the little gray cells. He wants it to invade their hearts. He prays that they experience God's love. Now, our culture is, is confused about love. So, last night was Valentine's Day. So, guys, if you missed it, welcome to the doghouse for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I saw couple of the Mennonite brothers yesterday in Costco, and they thought that was a Valentine's Day date. Hey, honey, have a sample. You know, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Bended knees with roses between your teeth. Do your penance, I think. So it's good to celebrate romantic love. But our culture's confused about love. Exhibit A, 50 Shades of Grey. Released to coincide with Valentine's Day. And as the psychiatrist Dr. Miriam Grossman said, the movie is actually about a sick, dangerous relationship filled with physical and emotional abuse. So we, we live in a confused culture that is focused on eros, erotic love, sexual intimacy, which is actually a gift from God also. But there's a higher love than companionship. There's a higher love than romantic love. There's a higher love than erotic love, and that love is the love of God. Now, Paul writes here in Ephesians 3 as someone who's transformed by the love of God. He was a religious bigot set in his ways, a violent man. And his mission, his quest in life was to stamp out the fledgling Jesus movement. And in so doing, he thought he was doing God a favor. But then, when he's off on one of his campaigns of terror, he's upended by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life is ruined forever. And he says elsewhere in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So what's he saying? His old life, dead, crucified with Christ. But actually, there's a new life. Jesus living his life through Paul. And he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. And that's a pivotal phrase that Paul was turned around by the Jesus who says, Saul, Saul, because that was his old name when he was the terminator. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And he's awakened by the power of Jesus' love and sacrifice. The love of Christ is infinitely greater than any human being can imagine. And that's why Paul, who's never short of a few words, kind of struggles in a clumsy way to communicate. It seems like contradictory. I mean, we understand in space there's only three dimensions. But Paul, when he's describing the love of Jesus in Ephesians 3, uses four dimensions. But he's just trying to say, listen, this love is immeasurable. This love is so fierce, so unstoppable, so powerful, even using the greatest power of imagination, you can't quite capture how vast this is because it's from everlasting to everlasting, a love that does not quit. And some of us, when we think of love, and maybe in tight juxtaposition with Valentine's Day, are reminded that we were wounded by so-called love, disappointed in love, exploited by love, and we're still kind of walking through some of the brokenness like the old rockers, Nazareth. Love hurts, love wounds, love mars, love scars. Any heart, bet you didn't sing that one last night. Not a song to sing on Valentine's Day, but it's true. But the love of Jesus is not only a love that can't be captured, a love that can't be measured, a love that does not quit. It's a love that transforms and it's a love that heals, and it's a love that frees us. So in 1 John 4, verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. Then verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. It's possible to live a fierce, fearless life as we experience the love of God, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears it's made perfect in love. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And of course, the idea is because Jesus took the punishment and God fully accepts those who come to him on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, we've nothing to fear and nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. The love of Jesus heals us. When we were in Scotland, which seems a long time ago now, we've been in North America, oh, fully 19 years heading into our 20th year, a young man came into our life who kind of became like a kid brother, a partner in crime, and a son. And his name was Davy. And uh, Davy came into our life after he met Jesus, and we, we loved him, became part of our family. But his story is kind of mind-boggling, that when he was turned 14 years of age, on his 14th birthday, his family sat him down in the living room and said, Davy, we've got something we want to tell you. And he thought, wow, I'm going to find out what they got me for my birthday. But they said, yeah, we've got something to tell you. 
So he listened to his mom and dad who said, we are not your mom and dad. The girl that you've always thought is your sister is actually your mother. We never wanted you. We don't want you now. If we weren't good Catholics, we would have had you aborted. You're a bastard and you're on your own. Now you imagine those words. An expectant 14-year-old thinking he's going to get something for his birthday. Well, he did. Something unexpected. And they said, you're on your own. So what did that mean? Did they turf him out on the street? No, he actually became like an orphan under the house, under the roof. Sleeping on the floor, doing his own laundry, doing his own meals, fending for himself, and coming into the shelter of the house. And he became a walking time bomb, full of smoldering anger and rage and getting into trouble because he was on an anger tripwire. Then fast forward several years, don't think he was quite 20 at that point in time, he meets a girl called Rosemary. And she says to him, hey, big boy, because he was like six feet five, say, hey, big boy, do you want to come to church with me? He said, no, I hate church. My family were church people, and he let off a tirade of profanity. But then she used her secret weapon, her eyelashes. <laughs> and she fluttered them at him and said, hey, big boy, Davy. <laughs> Won't you come to church with me? And he said, okay, hubba, hubba, hubba. So he came. But the hackles are up when he gets to this old granite church building. And he's just waiting for someone to look at him the wrong way. But he's immediately disarmed because Rosemary takes him to a children's outreach event. So you can imagine the sanctuary's filled with all these little squirts and rugrats. So he's immediately put at his ease. And as he's sitting there, disarmed by the presence of children, there's a children's evangelist who shares the good news and then has a word from the Lord for someone here, namely David. And God speaks straight to his heart. And he begins to sob uncontrollably, and he hadn't wept in six or seven years, and he's weeping and weeping and weeping. And that night, knee-deep in seven, eight, nine-year-olds, he gives his life to Jesus and experiences the transforming love of God. And shortly thereafter, he came into our orbit, our family, our meal tables, our schedule, my travel, and he was a blessing and a gift. And if you asked him, Davy, who's your dad? He'll give you two answers. One answer will be, I have no idea who my dad is. He said, I can remember maybe when I was seven or eight, a man appearing at the door and he was physically prevented from entering the house. And I think he's my dad. That would be one answer. But the other answer he would say, God is my dad. God is my Abba. God is my Papa. And he's no longer someone filled with rage, hostility, animosity. Why? He's experienced the transforming love of Jesus. The Spirit of God came into those broken, wounded, orphan places and released the healing love of God. And he's able to say, God is my Papa, because Jesus 
released the spirit of adoption into his heart. And it's this Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, who actualizes the love of God in the experience of the child of God. God invites you this morning to experience his limitless love. God wants you to come into an experiential realization of his great immeasurable love. This raises a vital question. Is your Christian faith being lived in your head or in your heart? Now, the Bible does not elevate anti-intellectualism. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we're called to do hard, critical thinking. But the danger is we can believe all the right things here and say all the right things here, but the truth of God and the power of God and the love of Jesus don't penetrate into the recesses of our heart. And we're wondering around why we're so disconnected that the life we live is detached from the promises of Scripture. And it's because we haven't experienced the agency of the Holy Spirit releasing the love of God into the stony places, into the barren places, into the thorny places, into the empty places, into the wounded places of our hearts. Has Jesus penetrated your heart? Now, I like Godfather movies. I like the Godfather trilogy. There's a great Anabaptist trilogy. Italians going crazy with machine guns. That's just a good time. And uh, Godfather 1, We've got Marlon Brando at Don Corleone. Let me make you an offer. You can't refuse. Then at one point, he's a heart attack and dies in amongst the tomato plants. He's dead. Oh, the Don has died. And then who takes the mantle? Crazy Al Pacino. And he becomes the Don, Michael Corleone. And he's up to his neck in criminality, violence, bloodshed, intrigue, and slaughter. My idea of a great movie. But he's haunted by some of the things that he's done. And in Godfather 3, he actually reaches out to a cardinal, Cardinal Lamberto, who eventually becomes the Pope. And they have an intriguing conversation in a courtyard. So they're kind of walking. There's Michael, crazy Al Pacino. There's Cardinal Lamberto. And at one point, they come to something that might be a giant bird bath or a fountain. And the cardinal takes a rock and plunges it into the bird. Uh, not the bloodbath, the, the birdbath, the fountain. No, Michael's the bloodbath, the cardinal's the birdbath. And so he plunges the rock into the water. And he says it's been lying in the water for a very long time. Then he whacks it on the side of the fountain and it's split open in two. He says, look, perfectly dry. The glistening water on the exterior of the rock has not penetrated the interior of the rock. So, you know, Michael's mildly unimpressed, because duh. But then he says something tantalizing. Lamberto says, the same thing has happened to men in Europe. For centuries, they have been surrounded by Christianity. But Christ has not penetrated. Christ does not live within them. This morning... That's a game changer. Has Christ penetrated your heart? I don't care, neither does God, what your religious pedigree is, or if you have no religious pedigree whatsoever. 
Has Jesus penetrated your heart? And it's the Holy Spirit, His role, His ministry, to actualize the love of God in your experience. So say, yes, Jesus has taken up residency because the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, lives within me, and He has released the love of Jesus into my heart. Paul prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To experience the love of Christ in all its dimensions, in all its vastness. He says, you being rooted like a well-rooted tree, putting its roots down into the nutritious soil system of God's love, or grounded like a well-built house on a foundation of the love of God. And maybe when Paul says the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ, and knowing the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, he's thinking of the cross. Octavius Winslow said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And the Holy Spirit is the one who releases the love of God fully demonstrated on the cross of Christ, the death of Jesus into our hearts. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Are you enjoying being loved by God? Do you know Jesus? Do you know his love is an experiential reality? Pastor Phil and I have got lots of friends and people in common in our lives. Our network kind of overlaps. Uh, And one of the people that we know and we're kind of fond of is a Greek Cypriot evangelist whose real name is Iannis Iagonis. But I mean, that's a lousy name for an evangelist. I mean, you put that in a business card. Hello, Mike, could I have your business card, please? Iannis Iagonis, thrown it away. Can't even pronounce it. Makes no sense. Chuck it away. So what does it actually mean? Iannis Iagonis actually means John John. But then if you are an adult man, Uh, You can't function in society going by the name John John. (laughs) It just doesn't work. Hello, what's your name? Hello, my name is John John. How do you do? And then you say, hello, John John. Need to go potty. Do you need some warm milk? Need some cookies? I need a blankie and a nap. Can I put a blankie over your Greek Cypriot cranium, little John John? So what does his business card on his website say? J. John. Now, doesn't that sound more awesome? Everything is awesome. J. John, evangelist to the solar system. Yeah, that sounds more cosmic and robust. And so J. John went to India several years ago. He met Mother Teresa. That's what you did back then when she was alive. You would go to India and you go, make sure, check, we see Mother Teresa. So he met Mother Teresa doing something beautiful for God in the streets of Calcutta. And she asks him a question. She says, hello, Mr. J. John. And it's like the clash of the titans. He's like five feet three. She's like four foot nine. And nuns aren't allowed to wear high heels. So she's like four feet nine. And she says, hello, Mr. J. John. Do you know Jesus? He says, hello, stupid nun. 
I'm an evangelist. I tell people about Jesus. That's my job. And she said, that isn't what I asked you. And she took her bony Romanian nun finger and put it under his hooked Greek Cypriot nose and said, do you know Jesus? He said, I tell people about Jesus. But she asked him a third time, do you know Jesus? And that time, he was sensible enough to be quiet. That's the question to face this morning. Do you know Jesus? Do you know his love burning in your heart? A friend of mine founded God Squad Motorcycle Club in Australia. One of their converts was a wild man who was changed by Jesus, and he wrote this poem, Do You Really Know Him? Oh, you say you know him, but you don't know him at all. The one that you tell me about lives in a picture on the wall. He comes from a plastic country where the sun shines all the time. I don't know who you worship, kid, but he ain't no friend of mine. My friend's eyes are gentle, but they're often filled with pain. He's no stranger to the back streets, baby, the alley and the lane. He's often found at parties with prostitutes and thieves. He's always there when you're there, and he's always last to leave. When you put your arm around him, you feel scars underneath his shirt, and you wonder why he loves you when you give him so much hurt. He's often tired and dirty, but you know that he's the boss, because when you take his hand, kid, you feel the nail marks of the cross. He knocked around with criminals. He gave everybody time. The women and the kids would flock to him. You know, they'd stand in line, but the churchy types, they hated him, so they hanged him on a cross, but they hadn't figured on one thing, baby. You just can't sack the boss. I knew as soon as he talked to me, he'd been where I had been. He'd seen the knife and felt the wounds of every lonely scene. He'd been right alongside of me when I was sleeping on the ground. And when I ride my Harley, I know that he's around. So don't tell me you know him when you don't know him at all. The one I love would never live in a picture on the wall. There's nothing false about him. There just ain't no plastic tack. You know this friend I love so well. He's been to hell and back. Do you really know him? Do you know his love? Do you know his presence? Let's pray, shall we?